Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 33. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and I'm very excited because it's almost convention time. That's right. Next week, IJA Festival in El Paso, Texas. I'm also very excited about this podcast because I get to talk to the fantastic, multi-talented Michael Godot. But before we get to that, of course, we must thank our sponsors, starting with the most important sponsor, the IJA. I'm sensing a theme. That's right, the host of this year's festival in El Paso, Texas, the IJA. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. It's not too late. Join me, Dan the Machine Holzman, as I MC the Welcome Show and meet my many fans, or my many fan, I should say, of the Drop Everything podcast. Also, of course, my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. If you have an act, if you want to make your act better, if you want to be funnier, if you want to be more successful, I will try to help. All right, enough preamble. Open your ears, drop everything, and get ready for Michael Godot. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 33, the fantastic Michael Godot. Welcome, Michael. Woo, thank you. Thanks, Dan. And 33, that's like a Masonic Illuminati. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's why you've chosen me for this. I appreciate that. Exactly, because I know you're interested in all kinds of... Uh, well, I'm a member of the Illuminati is what I should, I should just disclose right now. Well, you're not, you can't see, but I'm actually flashing my diamond symbol to you. <laughs> nice. So, and I'm also a fellow Illuminati. Well, not a member, but a member in training. Let's put it that way. So. But hey, I want to talk to you about all your accomplishments. So thanks for doing this six-hour podcast. Because <laughs> yeah, if we can finish in six hours, we will have done well. <laughs> I think you're probably my most well-rounded juggler. I mean, the most of the jugglers I talk to, I like to say are pretty juggling oriented, but you've, you've gone all over the map. So we got a lot to cover. Let's start with the, how the adventure began. Can we talk okay. about your early childhood and how you first discovered juggling? Sure. I, you know what? I think, and this is true for, I believe, many people of our generation. Uh, I got Carlos's juggling book. Mm, me too. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us did. Yeah. 1970s five or 76, I guess I got it for Christmas, uh, learned everything in it and, um, had no plans on being a juggler, just sitting. I had, uh, I grew up in Novato, which is where the old Renaissance fair was. And I had friends looked at a game booth, uh, you know, carnival thing, knocking down fuzzy cats with balls. And I was working that booth, sitting in that booth. And a couple of guys came by doing a comedy juggling duo. And I saw those guys and said, that looks better than this cat booth thing. <laughs> and I knew how to juggle. So, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to start doing that from now on. And Novato, that's in the San Francisco area. Yeah, yeah, north of San Francisco. Did you go to the, uh, the Pier 39? Were you aware of that scene at that time? You know what? Um, this was 1976. Mm. At that time, Pier 39 was not built. The cannery was the hot spot to do shows. And who was that? Like Ray Jason? Was he around that time? Yeah, Ray was there. This was uh, Michael Davis was there. Bob Hartman, the puppeteer, was there. A number of people who are still around and still in business. It was a good time. It was a really good time. There were, uh, it was pretty wide open right then. You, could, you really could go do a show on the street if you wanted to, although it was difficult. A lot of people uh, came out of that scene because you were able to do a lot of shows, I think. And was there a, a plan before the juggling came up? Was there something you were thinking about doing? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, still planning on being a forest ranger. I'm just the worst at it. <laughs> okay. A lot of, the most successful forest ranger in the world. <laughs> I could see a lot of alone time, a lot of time to think about your next project. 
I spent a lot of time in Yosemite when I was a kid, and uh, my job plan was to ride a horse through the backcountry of Yosemite and check people's wilderness passes. That's what I thought my perfect job would be. But then juggling came up and kind of ruined the whole thing, didn't it? Ruined the whole thing. Just entirely derailed my life. And so when did you actually start doing shows? So you saw this team, you, you were already juggling. That encouraged you to start doing some shows? I uh, was friends with Frank uh, Miles. Mm -hmm. He also lived in Novato, and he and I started practicing juggling. I said, this looks great. Let's do this. And he said, yeah, we'll do that. And uh, we both went home and made our own juggling clubs and met a week later and just started practicing four or five hours a day for the next few months. Did you make those, those Clorox bottle clubs that were in the Carlo book? No, we didn't make the Clorox bottle ones. I bought the, uh, the plastic bowling pins. Mm -hmm. okay. This was like pre-Dubay. There was not anybody making stuff at that point as far as I knew. Yeah. And it was also pre-internet, so there was no way to find anyone. So Frank and I got clubs and taught ourselves to pass clubs, well, having only seen it that one time at the Renaissance Fair. And then one night I was watching the news, and they were talking about a juggler's gathering in Golden Gate Park that happened every Sunday afternoon. And so Frank and I, the next Sunday, packed up and went into San Francisco and walked through Golden Gate Park until we managed to find it. Uh, and there were a lot of other jugglers there, passing and hanging out. Yeah, I saw you guys there. I'm not sure what year it was. Mm -hmm. And you guys, you teamed up and sort of formed a very uh, formative juggling team that really had a lot of permutations yeah. called the Fly-By-Night Jugglers. Can you give us a different... Different yeah. that? We started a virus. <laughs> yes, it spread. We were responsible for the explosion of juggling in the United States. I'd like to take credit for that. I wish okay. I could. I'll um, give you that credit. No, no, we don't think we deserve quite that much. Uh, while at the park that Sunday, we met John Park and Robert Lind. Mm -hmm. And they were kid club pastors also. At that time, actually, I was 16 years old. Frank was 15. John, I think, was 13. And Robert was 14. And uh, they used to come on up to Novato, and there was an ice cream parlor that we hung out at and practiced juggling. Old Uncle Gaylord's Ice Cream Parlor in downtown Novato uh, would let us go in and move out the tables and practice our juggling because it wasn't that busy at night. And we would go and juggle and eat ice cream. And at their one-year anniversary, they said, you guys have been practicing here a lot. How about you guys uh, do a show for our official one-year anniversary? And we thought, wow, that's a great idea. We hadn't done a show at that point. And just agreed to do it for free ice cream. And at that time, there was another guy practicing with us, Rusty Kitchak, who was uh, uh, 10 years older than any of us. And so uh, our first show was five people for free ice cream. And we went out and did a club passing act and uh, ate ice cream. Sounds good to me. Who books that game? Is that still uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. available? I wish it were. That was terrific ice cream. <laughs> but then a lot of those guys, like John Park, he teamed up with Scotty, Scotty Meltzer. American Dream Jugglers. Robert Lynn teamed up with Sean Haynes. Sean Hebert? No, Sean Haynes uh, became uh, Robert and, no, Wild and Haynes, I think. Did a yeah, lot of cruise ships. Did, been through many variations of that, yeah. And now uh, you, you, you basically teamed up, though, with Frank as kind of your main partner. Yeah, we did a couple of years of street shows in San Francisco. Actually, we, we, you know, we started out doing street shows at uh, the cannery and got in there. And uh, Pier 39 at that point was just being built. They came by and saw us do a show and asked us to come by and actually do shows. Before they opened, they gave us a hard hat tour mm. of Pier 39 to show us what it was going to be and to ask us if we would perform there. So we were the first jugglers on Pier 39 when they built it. And then a 
probably a few months after that, Ringling Brothers had auditions for Clown College. And we went down and auditioned, and a couple of us got in and went off to Clown College for a while. I'm always fascinated by the Clown College experience. That was a little before I'd heard about it, and I was thinking about it, but it kind of canceled before I made that leap. Right. Who were your instructors, and what was sort of the, the curriculum and experience like? You know what? The, the biggest part of it for me was that the people I knew back at that time who were the best had been to Clown College. Uh, Greg Dean, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Davis, uh, Pendulet, uh, Michael Marlin, all had been through Clown College, and they were the funniest, best comedy jugglers at that time. And so I wanted to learn whatever it was that had taught them to be great. And so we went to Clown College, and at that time it was eight weeks, eight in the morning till 10 at night, wow. six days a week. And they just taught you all the stuff you need for clowning, makeup and acrobatics, and they ran juggling classes, you know, any of the things, you know, slaps and falls, any mime, all of those things that you might need to be a clown. And at a certain time at the end of the sessions, they offer a certain number of the participants' contracts? Yeah, yeah. At the, end of the, at the end of the eight weeks, you do a big graduation performance. And the owners of the circus at that time, uh, Irvin Feld and Kenneth Feld, came to the show. And uh, you'd have a, you know, this big, super high pressure. There were 55, 56 people in my class. Big high pressure show, trying to convince them that they should hire you. And at the end of the show, you went back to the hotel that we were all staying at. And uh, the next morning, they showed up with a, a car and took one or two people at a time to offer them contracts. And no one knew how many contracts they had because it was all dependent on how many people had quit the year before. They had a, a number of people that they wanted to keep in the circus. And so my year, they ended up hiring a little more than 20 people out of the, out of the group. I was lucky. Uh, I was in the first car picked. So I didn't have to spend the next five hours sitting around hoping that they were coming back for me. That must be pretty crushing, the people who... It was. It was really chosen. upsetting for a lot of the people. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, the job itself is not exactly what you would call high-paying. Yeah, no. <laughs> I took home $99 a week. Well, that's a big step up from the ice cream, but not by much. Not much. <laughs> and you live like in a little, like a little train car. I live in a train car. I lived in a room that was three and a half feet by six and a half feet. Nice. And at the beginning of Clown College, they tell you this is a little tiny train room. It's really small, and they warn you about it the whole time you're there, and you you laugh. You oh no, how bad could it be? It's going to be great. And then the first day you actually go to the train and get to see your room, you stand in the hallway and cry. <laughs> But if that was in the Bay Area, they could sell that for like $2 million. Yeah, exactly. It's a condo now. But uh, at that time, that was the smallest place any of us had ever seen. And I imagine there's no bathroom or facilities. You all share a... There's a bathroom down the hall. Down the there's hall. two bathrooms down the hall. That's where I learned to pee, uh, leaning against a wall with my head. <laughs> okay, is that like the after effects of a, a clown party night or just... A, no, no, just a moving a train. Trying to pee on a moving train. <laughs> I'm sure I have, and I, I don't remember the resting my head against the wall technique. But. Yeah, that's a, those are one of the many skills you learn as a variety artist. There are a lot of obscure skills you learn. One of them is to pee with your head against the wall. <laughs> now, you toured with the circus for two years. Was that kind of, it ran its course, or did they ask you to move on, or how'd that end? I uh, was offered a job in a Mexican circus that would pay uh, $600 a week, which, as you can imagine, Seemed like a princely sum at that point. And Except so, for the term Mexican circus scares me yeah, a little yeah, bit. And, and he, he, 
See, you were so much more sensible than me. I left Ringling, went straight down to Brownsville, Texas, Oof, where okay. I met up with them. You know, I took a bus to Brownsville sure. and um, met up with them basically in a parking lot. And they said, will you drive the truck to Mexico for us? Mm, okay. The adventure begins. Yeah. So, uh, drive the <laughs> truck? Really? I'm, you know, I'm a clown, right? They said, yeah, yeah. We just want somebody to drive the semi. Oh, the semi. The semi truck. Yes, a semi truck into Mexico. But, wow, cool. Yeah, that sounds like a skill I would like to learn. Was that covered in clown college, the semi? Yeah, that was not one of the classes. I, uh, I went back offering to teach semi-driving. <laughs> so uh, I, I was uh, somehow awarded what I thought was the great honor of driving the truck. I liked driving. That was great. What I didn't realize is that I, I was offered this job because they were running guns into Mexico. Oh, and okay. I, <laughs> they got the gringo to drive the truck. Guns hidden in the ring curbs. And so driving oh, uh, the Mexican officials at the border to let us in. But in case that didn't work, I was apparently set up to be the ball guy. <laughs> That's how young and stupid I was. Sure, I'll drive the truck. No experience? Yeah. Well, I don't know why you offered it to me, but thanks. <laughs> and how long was it before you discovered the nefarious months. dual purpose? Months. Months later. How was the circus itself? Were they a good gun running, running circus or a bad yeah, gun running pretty, circus? Pretty good running, gun running circus. And uh, I drove the truck all the way down to Mexico City, which was a, a fantastic, amazing adventure. And uh, we sat up at the parking lot of Estadio Azteca, which is the biggest football stadium there, and ran a show for basically three months. And what kind of what kind of act were you doing? Like a straight sort of circus? Or you were clowning? You were the clown. clown. I was oh. still clowning. I, was, uh, I had gone from, you know, Ringling had... 24, 25 clowns in the show, to being a real featured clown. There were only three clowns in this Mexican circus. And, and we did, you know, all the gags and spots. So five or six or seven spots per show, where we did a little bit of juggling, a little bit of clowning, slaps and falls, a ladder gag, things like that. And how, how was the language barrier? Were you a, a Spanish speaker at the time? No, not at all. <laughs> but is clown a universal language? We had no microphones or anything, so there was no way it was going to be loud enough for people to hear us. So we were just jumping around. <laughs> but like working with the fellow clowns, were you able to kind of put something together? Well, the other clowns were also Americans. But they're also not aware of the gun running sideline. I, I suspect that that was actually the major money maker for, I believe, the circus was really the sideline. <laughs> I see. I see. Uh, but, you know, when you're driving a truck with a lion in it, people don't check the bottom of the cage, I guess. I don't know what happened. I don't know how they did it. But I spent three months there and had a blast and really enjoyed being a featured clown. At the end of the time, uh, at that time, again, pre-cell phones, payphones in Mexico did not work very well. And the closest payphone to the train was about a mile, to the, not the train, to the, to the circus was about a mile away. And so once a week I would go and, and try to call my mom. And it cost 20 centavos to make a phone call. So you put in 20 centavos, you try to dial the number, it doesn't work. The 20 centavos come back, you put it back in, you try it again. You do this about 30 minutes and you can eventually get through to whoever you're trying to call. So one evening towards the end of the run, like the last second to last day there, uh, we were sitting in our trailer watching The Fog, which is a really, at that time, a scary movie about kind of... Mm -hmm. Coastal town, the... So, yeah, it, in, undead people arrive. Yep. Really horrible. And uh, it's a rainy night, we're watching it, and I have gone out during the afternoon and, and spoken to my little sister and told her I would call my mom that evening. 
So I felt obligated to call my mom. So I set out in the rain with an umbrella across the, this long parking lot and then a half a mile up the road to the closest payphone. And I get to the payphone. And as I walk up, there's a, there's a day clinic uh, to one side of the payphone. And there's a man over there knocking on the windows. And I, have, I don't pay any attention to him. I walk up, put in my 20 centavos and try to call and it doesn't go through. And I'm holding an umbrella over my head. I, I can't really see what's going on around me. I keep trying the 20 centavos, which is, by the way, about a quarter of a penny at that point. Really, no value at all, a quarter of a penny. And I'm putting it in, and I'm trying to get the number to go. And I'm vaguely aware that this guy is getting closer to me as he knocks on the windows. And uh, finally, he comes over, and he's standing right behind me. And I haven't turned to look at him. I'm putting in my 20 centavos, trying to ignore him, hoping he'll go away. And I finally, he's just too close. And I whip around and say, what the hell do you want? And this poor man has been shot Oh! through the back of his head, and has, it has knocked off his jaw, and he is covered in blood, Oosh. and exactly like the monsters from the movie I have just been watching. And there's this, just this moment of complete terror that it's this monster, and that I have it away. And then for uh, the briefest of moments, I think, but I have uh, 20 centavos in the phone. I have to get that back. And I think, no. That's only a quarter of a penny. I'm going to run away. And so I freak out and run back to the train. Not the train. Again, I'm the, so the back circus. to the truck. Yeah. Back to the circus. You know, uh, I do the mile in two and a half minutes, just entirely freaked out. But this poor guy, he just, he just wanted some help. I get back to the, to, the, to the truck and realize, okay, this guy needs our help. We have to save him. And so I'm scared to death. I pick up a set of nunchucks and stick them into my pocket. <laughs> okay. And the other clowns and I get ready to go back to save this guy. And as I reach to the door, the, the door to the truck yanks open and we all leap back screaming and knock over everything in the truck. And it's just another friend of ours who just happened to be opening the door at the same time. But we tell him what's going on. So all four of us run back. We're going to help the guy. We get back and there's blood everywhere and there's an ambulance pulling away. Okay. So apparently he's used my 20 centavos to call for help or something. I don't know what's going on, but he, he's taken away. There's, again, it's an it's a abandoned street. Two of the clowns go back. One guy says, I'm going to hang out here with you just because I know you're nervous. And I'm entirely freaked out at this point. And I call my mom and don't tell her any of this. And finally, you know, have the conversation with her and hang up. And we go to turn around to walk back. And the police pull up. And the Mexican police hop out of the car and stop us and search us and find the nunchucks. And Ooh. nunchucks are yeah. a mandatory one-year sentence in prison in Mexico at this point. Because they're considered like a deadly weapon. Yeah, they're considered a deadly weapon. And there's just been this guy shot here. They think that maybe, I, you know, I don't know what they think. I don't speak Spanish very sure. well. But what I do know is that they're saying, you have to come with us, get in the car. Okay. This is, this is not turning out good, Michael. Let's this is not, it's not like I am <laughs> not getting in a car with the police in Mexico. At this time, people disappear and yeah. never come back from Mexico when they're arrested. The other clown is like, oh, it'll be okay. Let's get in the car with them and it'll be fine. And I'm, no, I'm not getting in the car. And the, one of the police officers is telling us to get in the car. And the other police officer is doing the nunchucks. Okay. Right, right, right. He's, you know, right. he's doing all the cool moves with the nunchucks. And the other police officer is saying, get in the car in Spanish. And I'm saying, no comprende. I am not getting in the car. And the other clown is saying, get in the car. It'll be fine. We'll work this out. And I'm, there's no way I'm getting in this car. While this is going on, two other Mexican fellows come walking by. The police doing the nunchuck stops, stops those two guys. 
And those two guys have bottles of alcohol underneath their coats. So he takes their bottles and he sets them on the back of the truck. And when he turns away from them, those two guys take off running like mad. The police shout, you guys stay here. And they jump in their car and race back to go try to catch those other guys. You know, the bottles of alcohol go shattering across the sidewalk and the police are yelling, stay there. And they race off. And I look at my friend and he and I take off running the other direction towards the circus as fast as we can. <laughs> yeah, I think so, the, uh, stay there never really works. In that there doesn't, yeah, I had already told them I didn't speak Spanish. Maybe that would get me off if they caught me. We run as fast as we possibly can back towards the circus. And we get across into the parking lot. And again, it's this huge parking lot that we're running across. And we see the police are coming back. The sirens are coming. They jump the curb and they're racing across this parking lot after us. And we're running as fast as we can towards the circus tent screaming. And we get to the tent, to, to the uh, tent and fence just as the police catch up with us. And we're screaming enough that all the other circus people are out there at that point. And, uh, you know, the owner of the circus comes out and says, there's some problem with my artists and I'm so sorry. And can we give you free tickets to the circus? And uh, the circus is... a a very respected art in Mexico. And so the police don't arrest us and take us away. But I slept in my clothes the rest of the time I was in Mexico. I was so nervous. <laughs> Isn't there a famous, uh, like a chant that you yell, like when there's trouble on the midway to bring out all these- Yeah, hey Rube, hey Rube. Hey Rube, you bring all- And we're definitely uh, beneficiary, beneficiaries of that, uh, that tradition. And all the Joeys and the first of Mays run out. Is that, is that clown lingo? Yeah, Joey's is the clowns. First of May is the new guy because it's not going to last until the first of May. Yeah, all the clown lingo. <laughs> I never, I never did the whole circus experience, but it's. Uh... It, you know what? It was really interesting. Living in Ringling Brothers was great. I told you I cried the first day I saw the train. I also cried the day I had to leave that mm. room because it was so comfortable and so much home. By the end of two years, you had really transformed this little tiny room into something that you loved. Now, when you get out of the circus, I remember a gig you had with uh, Craig Barnes. Yes, we yeah. We went to Japan. I was very jealous. Yeah, this was a great gig. I got off the circus and uh, got back from Mexico and uh, got back into the Bay Area. Fly by Night at that point had just become Robert and Frank because they, uh, Robert had gone to Clown College but had not gotten a contract and Frank hadn't gone. So they had started doing a duo show and were doing Renaissance Fairs and doing really well. Fantastic job. Great show. Yeah, both great performers. Both great performers. And uh, Craig Barnes and I were friends and started practicing just for fun. We got a call to work a winery and we had, you know, we practiced together for like four or five days and we went and did this show at the winery and that went well. And then the next day, somehow Craig got a call from an agency in Japan that said, we need a juggling act to fly to Japan tomorrow at noon. Mm. And it was noon <laughs> like Wednesday and they wanted us to fly at noon Thursday. Okay. We didn't have an act or anything. And Craig said yes. <laughs> well, you always say yes, right? You always say yes. Always say yes. That's the showbiz way. We got in a car and went straight to San Francisco. And at that time, you could go to the embassy. And neither of us had a passport. We went in and bought passports right that day. Wow. Went straight getting passports to the Japanese embassy, where the Japanese embassy issued us travel visas, work visas that would start the next day. You don't get that anymore. And 24 hours later, got on a plane to Japan somehow. And again, crazy story. Craig and I are on the plane 
trying to learn to speak a little bit of Japanese and to put together an act. So we're, you know, what do you have with you? What do I have? We have, you know, luggage full of props and that's all we know. We don't really have costumes. We don't have a show. We don't have anything. We arrive in Tokyo and the agent who's supposed to meet us at the airport to walk us over to the next flight and tell us where we're going doesn't show up. I've had that, yes. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Craig knows we're going to Osaka. We look through the airport, find the information booth, and somebody tells us the next flight to Osaka. And we go to that flight. And it turns out that is our next flight. So even without the agent there to tell us what we're supposed to sure. do, we've solved this problem. We get on a flight to Osaka. We Not Osaka, to uh, Sapporo. Sapporo, Japan. We arrive in Sapporo. There's no one there to meet us. So we have, again, no information, nothing. The airport in Sapporo is uh, an hour outside of town. And uh, it turns out that there's a train into Sapporo. So we get ourselves on the train. We have a piece of paper that Craig has written down the name of the hotel we're supposed to be working at. During the train ride, a Japanese guy comes up and talks to us. And, in, and at that time in Sapporo, there were very few English speakers. And so everyone there who had taken... Uh, which is, I think everyone in Japan is required to take English classes. I think they're shy about speaking, though. Very few want to speak it, but most of them know some. But there's every now and then you come across a person who does want to speak. And this is one of those guys. He came up to us on this train, said, you know, where are you from? And we said, the United States. And he says, have you seen Jaws? <laughs> okay. Because I, he's just trying to have a, sure. an English conversation. He wants to practice. So he turns out to be a great, fantastic guy. We chat with him. We explain to him what's happened. We get off of the train. It's, you know, I don't remember what time, late at night in Sapporo. And uh, we drag off our props and we start looking for a taxi into town. We don't really have any Japanese money. We're kind of standing there going, what are we going to do? And a taxi pulls up and it's our, you know, have you seen Jaws friend? Oh. And he the a taxi. And he says, nice. get a taxi with me. I will take you to the hotel. He takes us to the hotel, pays the taxi, helps us carry our luggage in, yells at the front desk of the hotel for not picking up their artists at the, at the, at the bus station, and then walks out and we never see him again. That's a good lesson because uh, a lot of times you'll be like on a cruise ship or something and, and they'll say, oh, the port agent will meet you. Yeah. I would say, but what if he doesn't? They go, oh, no, he will. But I go, but what if he doesn't? Oh, yeah. he will. But, well, no, but if he doesn't, I want, my, I want to know where I'm going. I want to know. Yeah, just tell me the name of the place I have to be, just in case. Because, you know, you show up in, in Argentina or somewhere, and it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's scary. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. And thank goodness I had Craig along as a partner because he had enough common sense to write those things down. And Craig is very low-key. He's very low-key, terrific juggler, funny guy. He did one really funny thing over and over. He got really panicky when he would drop. He was a great juggler. But drops made him really, really nervous. And so he would try to pick up as quickly as he could. Mm -hmm. But because he was nervous, he would end up kicking the club off the stage. <laughs> and then he would hop into the audience and kick it under a chair. And then he would climb under a chair and knock over the person who was sitting in the He was just so frantic when he dropped. <laughs> but I remember seeing a video uh, of your act. And it was yeah. quite good. A lot of good club passing, like eight clubs or something. And yeah. yeah, we didn't speak any Japanese. And so that was the first time I had been asked or forced to do an act with very little comedy in it. Uh, and so we, we did a, a good deal of club passing and uh, Craig did some great ball juggling. And uh, it was a really fun show. We had a really good time doing it. And we did uh, a month in Sapporo. We were supposed to do, I think, three weeks. We signed up for three weeks on this whole trip. 
And we ended up doing a month there. And then the agency took us to Tokyo and we did a month in Tokyo. And we had really planned on being a very short trip. It was not a lot of money, but we ended up doing about a year in Japan and a month in, in uh, Taiwan during that time. And were you, were you unicycling at that time? Because you also uh, ride the giraffe. I don't think we had, I don't think I had a unicycle with me at that show. But you had a show where you, you actually unicycled on, on fake ice. Was that yeah, after that, that gig? That was after that gig. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, one of the things when we were fly by night, when there were four of us working together, we auditioned for Great America out there uh, in the amusement park. And uh, at a point when they were cutting everyone else short, they asked us to go long. So we went in and did our our little club passing routine. And uh, at the end of it, they said, do you guys pass eight clubs? And at that point, Robert Lind and I had like tried eight clubs twice and been unable to do it. But because they'd been cutting everybody short, we just said, yes, sure, we do. Once again, say yes. Say yes, absolutely. And uh, they said, could you go back out and do it for us? And of course, Robert and I are pale as ghosts. Oh my God, we, we haven't really ever managed to make this run more than a few throws. But we went on and did it for a good long run, did a pileup with them, and we're ecstatic. <laughs> okay. Then they said, do you guys ride unicycles? And at that point, three of the four of us did ride unicycles. And so we looked around and saw that there were no unicycles and said yes again. And then Frank went home that day, bought a unicycle, and learned to ride it. Craig Barnes and I worked all of that time in, in uh, Japan and Taiwan. And when we came back, Frank and Robert had gotten a gig at an amusement park in Texas at Six Flags. Mm, remember right? that. And uh, they were doing the show and not getting along with each other very well. And so uh, they agreed that uh, Robert was going to leave and that Frank was going to stay on at the gig and that I was going to come in and, and take Robert's spot. And so I went there and uh, we uh, got along really well. Frank and I got along really well and worked together for many years after that. We quit uh, while we were in Houston. We did uh, three years at this amusement park, which was the greatest gig in the world because it was an open for nine months, uh, six months of that time, only on weekends. And we had a really great agent who managed to talk them into paying us the full fee the whole time. Wow. So for six months of the year, we worked only weekends and made a great payday. I think I met her. her she was, uh, was she uh, sort of dating Frank at the time or? No, no, actually, she, that, that, that was Victoria Barkley. Oh, that's she's, Victoria, okay. She's an agent now. Okay. At that time, she was not an agent. No, this was Frank Moore, a big, fat Italian. So they were not dating? No, not at that time. Okay. So we, <laughs> you mean Frank? Two Franks, I'm talking. Frank, no, they were not dating, no. Okay, just want to get that, I don't want that picture in my mind. So <laughs> no, okay. no you don't. Get that uh, clear. But like I said, Frank Moore you know, was Frank the Miles is a very attractive man. He's a very attractive man. Frank Moore was a giant with a very uh, Italian mobster look about him. Really a great, fantastic man and a great agent. But he got us this gig with this wonderful pay. And so we started taking improv classes and got involved in an improv company in, in Houston at the comedy workshop. And eventually that was our job. We, we quit juggling and became improv guys. Oh. And we did sketch comedy for two years. How does that pay? Is that better than juggling or worse than juggling? In fact, at the end of that two years, I believe MasterCard specifically called and recommended we get back into juggling. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we agreed with MasterCard that we should get back into juggling. We were making, again, back to Ringling days, we were at 200 bucks a week, I think, when we started doing improv for a living. And so uh, the first gig we got after that, after that, when we decided to get back into juggling, was in Toronto at the Royal York Hotel in an ice show on 
plastic ice. So it's, it's, a, it's a fake plastic surface that they spray with oil that people can actually ice skate on. Mm -hmm. And they hired us and we went down there, we're riding unicycles on this stuff, which was really exciting, <laughs> really slippery. You know, the, the free mount of the six foot unicycle on an oily floor, really, really an event. We switched to uh, BMX pedals at that point. That's when we switched to the metal with the teeth on them because we, right. our shoes were full of oil. What about the tires? Trying to like kind of grip on the tires or? No, we didn't. We tried not to ride very much. <laughs> tried to stay straight up so that you wouldn't slip out from under you. But there was just a friction. We were able to do it, but it was really exciting every night. I've only ridden a giraffe a couple of times. Always been very frightened. Yeah. Any uh, like falling off incidents or were you able to pull it off on this icy mineral slick? I mean, I've fallen off it many, many times. What's the key when you fall off? Is there a way to kind of get your legs out underneath you? Or, or? First, don't, don't hang on to the unicycle. Just let it, I mean, ride, ride it down, stay right. on it. And then just uh, the thing to realize is that it is going, you're going straight down and the unicycle is going backwards. Right just because of the gravity. And so if the unicycle is close to a wall or a person, it will hit that and then throw you forward. Sure. Because it's like it shoots out from underneath you, like slides out. Straight down and it goes sideways. Yeah. And so when it hits something, it flings you. Yeah. Just be aware that that's coming if you're near something. So prioritize more your mm -hmm. own safety of, over the safety of the unicycle. Yeah, let the unicycle go. It's going to do its own thing. Try not to let it kill you. <laughs> For quite a while, but then at a certain yeah. point... We 15 years. He had a very serious accident. Yeah, I was in competition as a paraglider pilot. I had oh, become, okay. Had a, a sponsored pilot. Really? Wow. Yeah. I didn't know they had that sort of thing uh, for competitions. It was really fantastic. I loved it. Totally loved it. And I was teaching Frank to fly, and he and I went out one day to fly. And uh, he had a, a very bad crash in which he broke his ribs and punctured his lung. We dragged him off of the mountain and raced him to the hospital. He uh, went to, into the ICU and was there for a couple of weeks. It was, uh, it was a weird thing. It was the, our last day, and at that point, we had auditioned in Las Vegas for the Follies Bergere and had gotten that gig. So we were finishing up a summer run at the Follies Bergere. It was our last night, and uh, Frank was hurt and unable to work. And I went in and did a solo act, which was the first time I'd ever done a solo act. But poor Frank ended up in the ICU for a couple of weeks, which was pretty bad. Did he have that famous juggler's insurance? <laughs> yeah, also known as uh, bankruptcy, I believe. Exactly, <laughs> as in uh, I got nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. And it was it was really hard on both of us, really, on Frank particularly. He knew he didn't have any money, so after about two days in the ICU, he said, I don't have any money, I have to leave. And they said, it's against our advisement that you do. Don't do that. But he left the hospital, went to our friend Lance Burton's house, stopped at the grocery store in the mall on the way to shop so that he would have enough stuff when he got home that he could eat and stuff. But the walking around had scraped oh. off the, the uh, wound inside of his lungs. And so he had started bleeding into his lungs again. And he didn't realize it. And he was at Lance's house. And Lance was doing a show. And he called Lance and said, Lance, I'm, I'm not feeling very well. Uh, can you call back and check on me in half an hour? Right. Lance, again, all of our lives are credited to the genius of our friends. Lance said, oh, of course, and immediately hung up and called 911. Smart, right? 911 went straight to Lance's house and broke down Lance's front door, which, by the way, Lance has never forgiven Frank for. Right, okay. <laughs> 
Plays he's still mad. New one, but he's he, he, yeah, still yeah. mad about that front door. It had a stained glass <laughs> in it, and these EMTs kicked it down, and frankly passed out on the floor and went back to the ICU for another couple of weeks. And of course, Lance Burton, for the people who don't know, is perhaps one of the greatest magicians of the 20th century, perhaps or magician. Yeah, really fantastic. Had the best 12-minute dove act ever, and really is a wonderful friend, and who I managed to get a job with for 20 years. So. And you met him because he was a fellow variety act in the Follies show. Yeah, um, when I was working at Astroworld in Houston. I saw Lance Burton on The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. He did a 12-minute spot on The Tonight Show, which, of course, no one had ever done. Up it was like until a that. New Year's show or something. I remember that as yeah. well. Yeah, and uh, I videotaped that show, and Frank and I and another magician friend of ours sat and watched that show over and over and over again because it was the best magic act we'd ever seen. It was unbelievable. We couldn't catch him doing anything. I remember I was at a, a walk-around doing a gig, and it came on the TV, and everybody stopped at this party and just was mesmerized. Yeah, it was amazing. It's an amazing, beautiful act. It all fits, the music, the costuming, his attitude, it all fits together. It was all, yeah, it was beautiful. It was a perfect act. Perfect best, act. best 12 minute act I've ever seen. Yeah. A few months later, we got an audition in the Follies Brigere and Lance was there and we got the job and we became friends with Lance. And over the next couple of years, we worked with him in and out of the Follies. And then when he decided, well, let's go back to Frank. Frank, Frank was hurt. Yeah. Couldn't work. Uh, about a week after Frank's accident, we were scheduled to actually go on the Smothers Brothers show, which uh, was their their second TV show. Right, right. Yeah. And I was so excited. I was the Smothers Brothers were huge heroes of mine, and we had to cancel that. And then after we after we canceled that, we had a cruise ship gig about another two weeks later. And uh, I knew Frank wasn't going to make it, and I also knew that if I called the cruise ship and told them that they would book somebody else. Sure. Not much loyalty on those ships, yeah. Not much loyalty. So I practiced a solo act and put together an hour-long solo act. And then the morning that Frank and I were supposed to get on the cruise, I called him and got, oh, my Lord, Frank has been in an accident. Right. I do a solo. <laughs> That's a good strategy, though, that last minute. That was a good uh, thinking. And it worked out great because uh, we were supposed to do two weeks. They kept me on for, I think, three months. They were happy with the solo act. Obviously, there's some some danger of them not being happy with it and that being awful. But I, I did everything I could to make it as good as possible, and it, it worked out. And I got that I got that uh, solo act going on on the cruise ships, which saved my life because Frank was out for months and months and months. And then when he was well, he discovered something that that I had already discovered, and that's that people pay for an act spot, not how many people are in it. Right. And you certainly know this as well as I do. Sure, being in a duo for so many years. Yep. Yep. They pay you for the spot. And so if it's just you, you get twice as much money. Yeah, like on a cruise ship, if they're paying 2500 for an act, it's right. one person, yep. three people, whatever it is. If it takes you 48 people to do that act, you split that 2500 bucks. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I discovered that and was uh, pretty happy doing the solo act for a while. But we shouldn't feel bad for Frank. No, no. Frank actually discovered the same thing. He got on the same cruise line and was making the same money. Yeah. We were both ecstatic. We had one more gig together, which was a long run at an amusement park, at a Six Flags amusement park uh, in Gurney, Illinois. And then Frank went on to be a very good motivational Yeah, Frank is, Frank is still a uh, juggling, hugely successful motivational speaker and juggler and doing a great act. And uh, we're great friends still. We work on writing projects and talk about doing juggling shows together all the time. Now, you, before you had this long-term working with, with Lance, you got to work with another great Vegas juggler who was quite well-known at the time because uh, Anthony Gatto also appeared with her 
Melinda, the first lady of magic. Right. It says here you were fired on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah, we're ahead. Uh, I was out doing this cruise ship gig. And because I'm an idiot, I decided that, you know, doing one night a week was not enough shows for me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't improving as quickly as I wanted. And so I landed a gig in Vegas. I was at a, during one of the breaks from cruise ships, I was at the Hacienda Hotel with a burlesque show was going on there. And a friend of mine, an old guy, old burlesque performer was uh, in this burlesque show and they had switched to a new show and kept him in the show. And it, he wasn't right for the show. And while we we're sitting at the bar afterwards, he says, I'm going to call them tomorrow and tell them I quit. And I said, well, what time are you going to call them? <laughs> right, right. Because I'll call five minutes later. And he says, I'll call at 11. And so, yeah, at 11.05, I called them up and said, hi, how are you guys? I'm just uh, trying to get a gig in Vegas as a variety act. And the producer of the show was someone I had worked for at the Follies. And so he said, yeah, yeah, actually, as it turns out, we have an opening. <laughs> four weeks from now. And so I went into that show at the Hacienda, uh, which was hits and uh, did that for a few weeks. And then Melinda's brother, uh, David Sachs saw me in the show and, and hired me for Melinda's show because I guess Anthony was off doing something else. Right. And he's a big, big producer. He's still a big producer in Vegas. Uh, he's huge here now. He's done so well for himself. You know what I mean? He's really got a bunch of shows and uh, things are going really well for him. Yeah. And uh, he hired me to be in his sister show, or his mother hired me. He recommended me and his mother, and uh, Bonnie Sachs mm -hmm. hired me to be in the show. So, so I went over there and worked with Melinda's show for about a year. And then at one point, uh, I came in, and all my props were in the hallway, and they said, you're out of here. And it was actually on Christmas Day, though. That was Christmas uh... Day. Yeah, I showed up on Christmas Day. They gave me a check for two weeks and sent me home. Oh. <laughs> but... You know, as far as another rebound, you ended up working with Lance Burton because he, he put together his own show. This was still a little bit before Lance put his own show together. Uh, after Melinda, I, during Melinda's show, I went to see a show called Luck Be a Lady at the Lady Luck Hotel. And it was the worst show I had ever seen. And uh, the first variety spot was a friend of mine, Tino Ferreira, who does a great rollabola yeah, act. With a TV, right? He had a TV. Yeah. Show. Yeah. And, and so uh, Tino is out there. You know, I'm, I'm at this show, and it really is just god-awful. And uh, just people are crying. <laughs> and at the, at the exact moment that you realized, this is the worst show ever, and I have wasted my money, they introduced Tino. And so I Tino walks on to people going, kill him. <laughs> yeah. He's good. High energy, Tino. He's had a good high energy. Yeah, no, Tino was great. Tino was great in the spot, and it was just the worst spot in the world. And I went, God, poor Tino. I'm so sorry. And talked to him after the show. Well, after being fired from Melinda, Tino just called me out of nowhere and said, I heard you got fired from Melinda. They're looking for an act to fill out. I'm, I'm moving to another spot. So a week later, I found myself in the worst variety <laughs> spot in Vegas history. <laughs> they, they love those shows. They're always called like scandals. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, there were a million shows back then. It used to be easy to get a job as a juggler here. Yeah. It's not anymore. But uh, I went into the show, and I knew this was the worst spot in the world. And so I went to the producer and I said, do you mind if I do 10 minutes pre-show? Oh. Because I, you know, I, I lied. I'm working on some new material. Can I do a 10-minute pre-show uh, just as a warm-up before the show yeah. and that's my regular spot? And for him, it was just nothing but a bonus. Sure. And for me, it was going to save my life because I could go out there and be funny for 10 minutes before everything got peed all over by the show. <laughs> all right. Then when you made your appearance, people kind of warmed yeah, up to you. Oh, thank God it's this guy again. Okay. Yeah. So it, it worked out so much better for me. And I was in that show for not very long, a few weeks, 
because Lance had managed to sell his own show to the Hacienda Hotel. Right, a full-length evening show. Full-length evening show. Somehow he had talked them into doing that. And, uh, you know, Lance and I had been friends for, at that point, for a couple of years and had spent a lot of time hanging out and were great friends. And I was privileged enough that he asked me if I would be the act in the show. So I went in and helped him write jokes and put together the show. And we opened up. Uh, before we opened up, we had I went in for a meeting with the hotel because they wanted to meet me. Mm-hmm. And during this meeting, they said, you'll have to buy your own microphone because we're sick of these acts who come in and they suck and the show's only open a few weeks and they steal our equipment. So you have to buy your own microphone. <laughs> That's a nice vote of confidence. Yeah, yeah, really uh, a very positive, uplifting first yeah. meeting with Hacienda. A few years later, five years later, I was still there. My microphone system was still there. That executive had been fired. <laughs> You know, so things worked out really well with Lance. Yeah, we opened up a 90-minute evening show, and it ran for years in that room. But then you went on to a they – built, they built the theater for him at the Monte Carlo. Was it the, the Lance Burton Theater? Lance's manager at that time, Peter Ravine, the great hypnotist from Canada, manages to sell a giant show for us. Yeah. Uh, and we moved from this little tiny kind of crappy theater at the Hacienda, which, by the way, was the greatest room for comedy. It was just wonderful. I say, I say happy just because it was an ugly room, but it was a great room for doing a show. Now, what do you think makes a great room for comedy? The audience is close. They're tight together. Yeah, the proximity. And other than that, I can't really tell you, but you can see it. Oh, yeah. You know, there are many, many rooms that are still at great comedy rooms. And you you and I both worked uh, Hermosa Beach, and you know it's yeah. somehow it's one. I cannot tell you how or why, but it always rocks. Yeah. There's just some rooms that are built for comedy, and, and they've just got the juju going on. Now, his uh, show ran in the, at the Monte Carlo for 13 years? 13 years. We did 14 years, actually. We had a 13-year contract when we started. We did 14 years. So all in all, I worked for Lance for about 20 years. Phew. So, yeah, as a juggler, that is unheard of. I got a gig that lasted for 20 years. And I have to tell you, Michael, the, the feelings among the other jugglers were... Oh, I know. Michael Godot is the luckiest juggler in the world. I am, yeah, I'm in the Lucky Ass Hall of Fame up there with Ringo Starr and Ed McMahon. Yeah, you can make an argument that you really are the most successful juggler in, in Vegas history. Yeah, it's, which is really weird. It's a weird thing to say because I believe I'm also the worst juggler in Vegas history. You were definitely that stereotypical comedy juggler. Yes. Definitely more focused on the entertainment. It matters to me more than the juggling. Well, yeah, I think at a certain point we all realize that we're either one or two different kinds of jugglers. Right. And we're not the guys who are going to be doing the five club uh, pirouettes and the flash. But it's a good fit for some of us because we're good talkers and we like being funny. Yeah, and that that was always more important to me was the comedy. Well, then there's more options. There's more lifespan to it. But how do you keep it – like when you're doing a show night after night, basically the same lines – What tips do you have to keep it fresh? The biggest thing for me is just the thought that this is Groundhog Day, just like the Bill Murray movie. (laughs) Right, right. Over and over, yeah. Over and over. And uh, at the end of the movie, he learns that if he makes his day a little bit better every day and improves himself a little bit every day, that his life is great, even though it's the same day over and over. And if you can learn to do that as a variety artist, you'll get better. You know, the be- one, of the, uh, one of the best variety artists ever, uh, George Carl. Sure, the clown. The- Very much the same act for most of his career. The funniest eight minutes you'll ever see. 
And you were also good friends with uh, Johnny Thompson, Tom, the great Tom yeah, Sony. Yeah, Tom Sony. I was lucky enough to work with Johnny Thompson in Philadelphia for the first time, like in 1985. I've worked with him quite a bit on cruise ships and uh, just a bunch of gigs. And if people aren't aware of, of uh, Tom Sony, another act that's a must-see. The great Tom Sony and Company, yes. Yeah, one of the greatest comedy magic acts. Certainly uh, that was one very inspirational to other acts, we could say. And one of the greatest comedy duos with his assistant, his wife, uh, Pam. Pam, uh, yeah. And uh, he went on to be very close to you because he's also a consultant with uh, Penn & Teller. Right. In uh, 19, I guess it was 1980, or maybe earlier, uh, Penn and Teller and another guy named Weir were doing a show in Las Vegas called Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. I don't know if you remember it. They did that um, in Vegas? Because I remember they, they started... No, they didn't uh, do that in Vegas. They were in... This was San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. They traveled a few places, but they were in San Francisco for a while. Mm -hmm. I went down and saw this show, and it was hysterical. It was a terrific show. And after the show, I went up to Penn and said, I'm a street juggler here in Vegas, and it's a pleasure to meet you. And... He you know, yelled over to Teller, this guy says he's a juggler, but I don't believe him because he's mm -hmm. dressed like a hippie. Because at that time, that's what all the you jugglers... You said you were dressed like a hippie? I wasn't dressed oh. like a hippie, so I, was, I couldn't possibly be a juggler. You had shoes on, and you weren't yeah. you had bathed that day or something? Yeah. Yeah, and we became friends. You know, every few months, I would see their show. And then while I was in Lance's show, Penn and Teller got a residency here in Vegas, and we're here for a good deal of the time. And uh, as you know, the variety arts community is a pretty small group. And we're all pretty good friends. Yeah, we used to work with Penn in the Renaissance Fairs back yeah, in Minnesota. Yeah. We even kept Mofo the Psychic Gorilla mm -hmm. in our apartment for him for a couple of weeks. Nice. See? So <laughs> that's like my only contact with Penn. I don't really, I don't really know him. I haven't really spent any time with him. He's a fascinating guy and, of course, a, a great – I think Penn and Teller, as far as a variety act, yeah. are the most amazing, successful duo ever. The, the, the amazing thing is how hard they work still. The show is constantly changing. It's always getting better. The show today is better than it was a year ago, better than it was three months ago. They always add a couple of new routines every year. Is that their philosophy? Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to do, I think it's a third new material every year. And you got involved with Penn on a lot of his projects, including, uh, yeah. what was the first, like, was it a Showtime what was the chronology? The first one was uh, they had a show on the FX network called the Sin City Spectacular. Yeah, remember that? Which was a Sonny and Cher variety show, really directly a variety show. A couple of weeks before that show was going to start filming, they hired all of the acts they knew in Vegas to come in for one week and work on creating bits for the show because that was – uh, a new hour-long TV show every week for 24 weeks, they were what we were going to do. And that's just too much material. No one has yeah. that much material. And so they hired everybody they knew <laughs> to come in and sit in a room. So it was sitting in a room with, you know, with uh, Mac King and it just, just everybody you can think of in Vegas is in this room helping to create ideas for this show. And at the end of the week, they said, thank you, guys. You can all go home. I really appreciate all your help and stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm not going home. Right, you're digging it. You want you you like that whole thing? Yeah. I love this. I am in for the long run. No matter <laughs> I stuck around, and a week later they were doing. We were filming a bit that I had helped to create with them, a cut and restored rock climbing rope, at uh, one of the rock climbing walls here in Vegas, and I had rigged it so that all of the dancers in Las Vegas style costumes and feathers were hanging on the rock climbing wall. And Penn and Teller were sitting on top of the wall and cutting and restoring a climbing rope that Super Dave Osborne was climbing up on. 
I remember one bit that you created. It got probably one of the longest laughs, I don't know, in TV history, but it got a big <laughs> laugh. It was a, a bit with Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Oh, I remember that with a, a pie or something. Am I yeah. correct? Oh, yeah, this was great. This was a great bit. We, you know, when we were talking about bits, I said I had always thought that it would be really funny if you could sing my funny Valentine. Sure. Just have a third arm fake hand holding up one side of this giant Valentine. And just halfway through it, a hand came up out of the Valentine and hit you in the face with a pie. Well, it's a pretty simple clown gag, and you know none of us could do it. But a part of the Sin City Spectacular was that there were guests on every week. And one week we had Lyle Lovett coming on, and we said, what bit can we do with Lyle Lovett? And uh, Panner Teller says, well, why don't we try that funny Valentine thing that you were talking about? And Lyle Lovett did it, and Lyle Lovett sings so beautifully that you do not see a gag coming in any way whatsoever. He's so straight. It's such a beautiful and sad song, and Lyle Lovett standing on stage and singing it is a beautiful moment. In rehearsals, I forgot that Lyle was going to do the gag. Right. You know what I mean? I just sat watching him singing and holding this valentine going, my God, this is one of the greatest, most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> and he hits himself with a face of the pie. Again, right place, right time, had a gag that fit. Well, that's yeah. comedy, right? It's like, it's the unexpected. Right. It's the surprise. And mm -hmm. uh, like I say, if, you, if people don't allow to love it, he's this very tall, gawky, yeah. stone-faced. Beautiful singer, stone-faced, very serious looking. Yeah, married to Julia Roberts for a few minutes. That was a big deal, <laughs> but it was a that was a great show because I got to I did finally get to work with the Smothers Brothers and I wrote some jokes that the Smothers Brothers did on the show on on our show. You've done a tremendous amount of writing for them and you've garnered how many Emmy nominations? Is, is it ten? Twelve. I, twelve. I, yeah, twelve or thirteen Emmy nominations. And if we're keeping score, that's Godot twelve, Holzman zero on the Emmy nomination count. So half of show business luck. And how does that how does that work when you get an Emmy nomination? Do they inform you? How do you know you get the Emmy nomination? No, you just it happens because a friend of yours emails you. Somebody who you are not very close with will email you and say, "You're on the Emmys list this morning. I just read the list, and your name is on it." And what kind of thrill is that for, for the juggler from the the small room in the circus, all of a sudden getting an Emmy nomination? It's it's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah. It's pretty great. I, you know, I don't uh, having the job is the is the reward. You know what I mean? Getting to do it, and I know that sounds like uh, like a sour grapes thing, but competition. There's already enough competition in show business, and, and sure. the Emmy Awards seems a little silly to me. Teller points out that everyone is your boy Cub Scout Awards banquet. It's just the Cub Scout Awards banquet when you're at the Emmys. And how do you really judge art? I mean, it's sort of unjudgeable. It's all personal. So, yes, it's great to be noticed, and that's a really fun thing. And it's, I enjoy going to the Emmys because my wife loves that kind of thing. Go and walk the red carpet in a tux and have reporters yell, get out of the way, I'm trying to take a picture of that guy behind you. <laughs> I would love to do something like that. I love celebrities and the pizzazz of showbiz. You ever, ever been to the Oscars? Is that something you've attended? I have not been to the Oscars, but. You, know, you and me together, one day, Oscars. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go. <laughs> That's, you know. Well, now that you're also a movie actor and a movie writer, is it is possible. Lance is saying, yeah, we'll go to the Oscars. I've already got my speech prepared. But, you know, that's... Because you were involved recently in a, in a feature movie that Lance Burton... You, you co-wrote with Lance Burton, is that Yeah, right? Yeah, Lance and I, while we were doing a show... I mean, this is a long-ass project. Right. While we were doing the show at, at, the, at the Monte Carlo... 
Lance said, let's write, he said, I have an idea for a movie about a magician who does this trick to save his girlfriend. And so I said, well, yeah, let's sit down and write it. Maybe we can sell it to Nickelodeon. So we sit down and we write this, you know, essentially a kid's movie about a magician and a set of variety artists using their skills to sure. stop crime, basically. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to juggle knives around some guy. Yeah, yeah like Mike Holly in it. Yeah, yeah, Michael Holly is in it. Russ Merlin, Lance, a bunch of people, a bunch okay. of folks here. Johnny Thompson's in it. A lot of variety acts doing acting spots, which is really funny. You got Matt King in there? Matt's in there. Mac is in there. We finished this script. I say, let's sell it. Let's send it off to Nickelodeon, get an agent, see if we can find somebody to buy this. And during that time, Lance has decided that uh, he's had enough of the Monte Carlo and has quit. Right. Retired. Yeah. They're asking him to do some things with his staff to cut pay and to fire people and stuff that he felt that they weren't, that was not appropriate for them to do. Mm. Okay. And so rather than submit to that, he decided he would close the show. So once he's made that decision, he's given them, you know, a year's notice. Right. He says, well, now that we're doing that, let's make this movie ourselves. And I was, uh, are you sure? Because, you know, we're not cameramen or actors or any of those things. He said, yeah, well, we're not writers either. Let's <laughs> go ahead and make it. And so for the next five years, Lance works on this movie project, just trying to get people to do stuff. We're all doing it for free and finding a time when Michael Holly and I are in town at the same time. Yeah, you're both busy professionals. He's out on the ships a lot. And if he's working, I, it's because I'm not working. If I'm working, it's because he's not working. <laughs> and is it available? Can we see the, and what is the t actual title? It's a, a Billy Toppet Master Magician. Billy Toppet Master Magician. And I don't think you can see it yet. I think that Lance is planning to do something with it where people can see it. I mean, it's been run at a few film festivals and stuff. It just won some awards at a, at a festival in uh, nice. Iowa, I think. I'm not sure where. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, ama it's amazing that Lance managed to get this done. Like I said, none of us are actors or cameramen or sound men. And uh, it's an amazing accomplishment to get it. Because, it's, you know, it's an hour, sure. hour and 20-minute movie with 75 people. And the budget, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I mean, that movie's expensive. Yeah, what the budget is. I do know that he bought the cameras and, mm. but, you know, did the editing himself with uh, Bob Massey, uh, a magician here in town, and really did a lot of, huge amount of work himself. Well, I'd like to see it one day, because like I say, I, I know a lot of the people in it, and I saw a little quick preview, and it looks fun and funny. So uh, when it's available, hopefully... Uh, well, I'll know about it and get a chance to see it. But you have a lot of other uh, side projects. We're not close to our six hours, but we need to cover, <laughs> okay, cover a few of them. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about ideas, because I'm also a guy who loves ideas. Yes. And you've had a couple of interesting ones that you've actually, like a lot of people have ideas, but they don't follow through. Right. And you've had ideas like, and some people might think, well, that's a silly idea or a frivolous idea. It's clever. Right. But you actually... I am the king of silly and frivolous. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, I, I, I love silly and frivolous myself. It is. And I would have loved to come up with a couple of these frivolous things that you came up with. Because <laughs> one I really like is, I like all of them, but the uh, the barbecue covers, like little animals. Yeah. That, that yeah. You... <laughs> BBQZoo.com. You can buy a barbecue cover that's shaped like a cow. So did you think that the world needed a cow-shaped barbecue cover? Me thinking the world needed and the world needing are really very different, as it turns out. Mm. Uh, I was sitting in my mother-in-law's backyard in the jacuzzi with my wife. In the bushes was her barbecue, which had a black barbecue cover on it. But because of the angle I was sitting at, I thought, well, that looks like a rhinoceros. And I thought, boy, it'd be really funny if you had a barbecue cover that looked like a rhinoceros. 
And I went home and started sewing. One of the clown college techniques I learned was sewing. Okay. And so I tried to make, I decided by that point, a cow was a funnier idea. So I made a three-dimensional cow's head out of fabric and a body and just put it over my barbecue and laughed at it. And then just started making a few different designs. My uh, brother-in-law is from a small town in Bolivia where they used to sew a lot of things, but because the companies that worked there had moved out, they had a high unemployment rate. And he said, I bet the people in my town would love to make these. So I had a few thousand barbecue covers made in this little tiny town and shipped to me. And now I sell them online, bbqzoo.com. So for all your funny barbecue cover needs, BBQ. Yes. BBQ Zoo. If you're sick just that black death shroud on your barbecue, why not trade it in for a chili pepper? And so what, what exactly, what kind of different options do I have to cover my barbecue? Uh, there's uh, UFOs, there's chili peppers, there's a giant mustard bottle. I'm not sure what I have left. That's, that's probably about all I have left. There's a chili pepper and a sombrero. Yeah, that's probably all I've got around the house right now. Sad to say I'm sold out of house. Oh, you sold out the cows? That was your first one? That was the big seller. Mm. Well, say in the food uh, realm, because you're also a, how would you describe it, a creative pancake artist? I wrote the book on pancakes. Uh, when my kids were young, my kid was two, two or three years old, they weren't very interested in eating very much. And so I decided I would try to make pancakes for them that were pictures of things that they liked. And so I experimented around and finally found that if I put pancake batter into a ketchup bottle, I could draw pictures. Like a squirt bottle, okay. Like a squirt bottle. Here's the weird part. If you put the pancake batter onto the griddle and wait a minute and then put some more batter, batter around it, when you flip it over, the batter you put on first is darker. Duh, okay. right? We know that. Clearly, yeah, we know that. Sure. And so I, I just by accident discovered that I could make a smiley face pancake by putting two eyes in a mouth waiting a minute and then pouring pancake batter over the top of it so you had a regular round pancake. And then when you flipped it over, there's a smiley face. My kids like this. I started getting elaborate. Uh, and so I started making trains. My son was a train nut. You know, I started making letters. I started making their names. And then I just got obsessed with it and started making crazy pictures. And I think the uh, culminating in Edvard Munch's The Scream, mm. The Screaming Face. And I made a pancake out of that. And the cool part about that is you can't see it until you flip it. So it's just estimating where everything is in, in the darkening process. So you put on the first few pieces, and then you put on a few more and a few more, and then when you flip it over, those are all different tones of brown. Mm. And so you're just trying to guess how long you have to do it to make it the scream. So, you know, we had pancakes for months before I got a good looking scream done. Uh, and then I started playing with uh, just food coloring because I wanted to make, I had a, a joke with the, uh, with the brown ones, I found a way to make it looked like bacon and eggs. So I could make pancakes that looked like bacon and eggs. So mm. when someone said, I, I don't funny. want pancakes, can you make me bacon and eggs? I made pictures <laughs> right, and right. served it as a joke. Uh, and then I started adding food coloring because I wanted to make like a taco platter and stuff like that. And then I started making three-dimensional pancakes. So I made a, a snail that stands up on the plate. And then I made a trail of syrup that went all the way across <laughs> off the plate and off the table. <laughs> the slime trail, sure. The slime trail out of syrup. And then I decided this is a funny idea for a book. And I talked to Mac King of The Great Magician, greatest show, really funny, best show in Vegas, one of the funniest shows you could ever very see. Very long running, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mac has just published a series of magic books. And I say, Mac, can you put me in touch with your publisher? I think this might 
be something that they would be interested in. Because at that point, really, no one else was doing this pancake picture thing. I've seen some more now. I mean, you see some pretty elaborate ones. And the good part is that people much more skilled than I have gotten a hold of it. Yeah. And so they're doing great stuff. You know, I mean, I was just messing around with it. And as, as far as I know, one of the first people to do it. And so I went to this the publisher. He said, here's the name of the publisher. Send them a letter. I send them a letter with some pictures. They say, this is great, but we're not sure how much interest there is. Why don't you start a blog? Hmm. I started the pancakeproject.blogspot.com. A celebrity spots it and puts it on her Twitter feed, and it just goes wild. Felicia Day spots it and uh, puts it not, on her Twitter feed. I'm familiar with Felicia Day, but that was a nice nice thing to have happened. Yeah, it was great. And, and she had you know, 2 million followers. And so all of a sudden, I'm getting 50,000 people a week to look <laughs> at these pictures. Sure. And the book, you know... The book publisher goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's some interest in this. And so uh, I get a book deal with Barnes & Noble and make nice. them out, and print them out, and sold out of them now. So You're an amazing man, Michael Godot. You're an amazing man. Uh, a lucky, I believe, lucky-ass Hall of Fame qualifies uh, all of those things. Well, I mean, you know, we make our own luck, right? Luck meets preparation, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that, that, and that's true. You know, I, I think half of half of showbiz is luck, but the other half is you have to have a good act. And the other half, we're going to add a third half, has to be that you're easy to get along with. I've always kind of prided myself on being easy to get along with. Well, you're, so, you're what they call a good hang, right? A good yeah. Hang. Yeah. In fact, I was on the cover of Mum Magazine as the magician's best friend. <laughs> oh, hey, not a bad moniker to have. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's better than like the magician's pain the butt or something. Or... It's worked out really well. I've, you know, I've had great runs with uh, Lance. And with Penn and Teller, and now I'm working. I'm in uh, Fifth the Magic Dragons show here at the Flamingo Hilton. Are you still working seven nights a week? Yeah, I had another show that just recently opened and closed, so uh, I'm I'm working three nights a week right now with Piff. And uh, Piff's another guy who's recently just gotten huge, especially after his appearance on AGT, America's Got Talent. Yeah, I gave him a big boost. He's doing great. He's like I said, doing three nights a week here, and then Sunday night after the show, I drive him to the airport. And he goes off and does a comedy club Thursday through Sunday and then flies back Monday and we're back on stage here Monday night. It's a crazy schedule. And you're also currently on uh, Penn Gillette's podcast. That's the yep. Penn do Sunday School. Is Penn the... Sunday School. Do a weekly podcast on Sundays for the irreligious libertines among us. <laughs> and anything else you'd like to plug or promote before we, we put a, a button on this one? I think you've been more than generous. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, thank you, Michael. And, and, you know, I'm not just saying it. I really admire you because I, I love ideas. I love people who are, you know, who are jugglers but aren't stuck like that's their identity. Well, you know what? Like you were saying, it could get boring doing the same thing all the time. I mean, I love it and I love doing the show, but I've, I've really had a lot of luck in doing other stuff. I've kept really, really busy. But, you know, part of that is the juggler thing. We work 15 minutes a night when we're working. So if you're not spending that time doing something valuable, I don't know what you're doing. Well, I think it's all about creativity, right? If you want to be creative, it doesn't limit it to juggling. There's art, there's writing, there's movies, there's podcasts, there's blogs, yep. there's pancakes, there's barbecue <laughs> covers. You know, I'm doing an act now where I fly remote control airplanes inside of arenas, which is really great. Nice, like like multiple airplanes at once? Or? Yeah, 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 a little formation flying, and they drop parachutes, and they light up. And, <laughs> and is, there, is there somewhere we can see that? Or? No, no, the show that I was, the other show that I was in here in Vegas that closed, I was doing that in it as well as some juggling. So just always trying to do new stuff, always fascinated by anything new I can learn. Well, I can't wait to see the new stuff you've come up with, and thanks again to the most successful juggler in Vegas <laughs> history. Yeah, that's uh, 
the amazing with faint praise. <laughs> but hey, it's like I said, it you can you can definitely say that. Yeah, who else? I mean, Chris Cremo had a nice run at the Stardust. Yeah, and I think I just did more years than Chris. I you know I don't want to in any way claim to be doing a better job than Chris. Like I said, the most successful is different than the best. Oh no no, I think we both know the difference mm -hmm. between. There's a lot of good jugglers now who don't have acts. Right. And to have an act that works. That, especially when they're not there to see you in particular, right. whether you're an opening act or a spot in someone else's show or you're on a cruise ship. You know, to be able to come out and entertain people for up to an hour or more, it's more than just juggling, right? It's, it's the whole package. Yeah. And you, Michael Doe, have the <laughs> whole package. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for being on the Drop Everything podcast, Mr. Michael Godot. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, sir. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 33, my conversation with Michael Godot successful Las Vegas juggler and gun-running clown. Who knew? Let's thank our sponsors, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about this great group and their yearly festival at juggle.org. Let's thank me, Dan Holzman, by visiting my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. Let's thank my wife, Karen Holzman, for doing all the engineering on these podcasts. And let's thank you, the Drop Everything listeners, for going to iTunes, and leaving a five-star rating. And don't forget, that's five stars out of ten, so it's not even that good. All right, till next time, drop everything, except when you're juggling.